Hey everyone, Laszlo Montgomery here with another episode from the bottomless bucket of interesting topics from Chinese history, Zheng Shi today, also known as Zheng Yisao. Over the past six years, this topic has been requested numerous times, and right in the middle of researching this episode, I received yet another email request, this one from Timur, asking me when in the heck am I ever going to cover this little-known anti-hero from the mid-Qing dynasty. In this episode, I'm going to focus on the life of Zheng Yisao, but I also hope to offer up the bigger picture of what else was going on as far as piracy in the South China Sea during this period in the late 18th, early 19th century. You know, in our day, at least here in the U.S., the whole notion of piracy, pirates has been so softened up and distorted by decades of Disney, Hollywood, and plain old American mass culture doing its thing. These pirates were nothing like Johnny Depp's Jack Sparrow character. The brutal truth about pirates, and certainly this is the case of the Haidao who sailed the South China Sea, was that they preyed without mercy on anyone and everyone who called their home the coastal areas from Zhejiang to Guangdong provinces and all the way down the coast to Vietnam. The local inhabitants, when they saw them coming, would just sprint for the hills. These pirates would murder and degrade people in the worst possible ways. And these weren't people who had a lot either. But they never stopped pirates from seizing whatever little they had that was of any value. They were a scourge in every sense of the word, both the noun and the verb. The stories abound about the ease with which they would carry out the most despicable torture on people and engage in the most heartless, cold-blooded murder like it was nothing. So these people we're looking at today don't have any sympathy for these devils or compassion for them. They were mean and heartless, rough people, born into hardship, always living by their wits and their ferociousness. As far as our story goes... One of the defining moments in the history of piracy in the South China Sea was the Taishun Rebellion down in Vietnam. That lasted from 1770 to 1802. It was the aftermath of this historic period in Vietnam that lifted these seaborne raiders to a whole new level. This Taishun Rebellion first broke out in Binh Dinh Province, south of Da Nang, north of Nha Trang. Taishan, or West Mountain, Shishan in Mandarin. It was a village where these three brothers, surnamed Nguyen, no surprise there, rose up against their oppressors, powerful nobles, also surnamed Nguyen. The Lei dynasty had degraded over the years to the extent that they ended up being controlled by these strong feudal lords, a la Eastern Zhou dynasty. The emperor was powerless and was controlled by the strongest clan, in this case the Nguyen's. No relations to the Nguyen's of Daishan, like many other countries. Vietnam had its own homegrown version of peasants who suffered from brutal landlords, greedy and corrupt officials, and general negligence from the state. Enough hardship had befallen these peasants in Vietnam, whereby this Daishan rebellion took off and caught fire quickly. The Taishan rebels sought to give the people a fair shake, overthrow the Nguyen oppressors, and restore the Lei dynasty. This rebellion got way bigger than anyone thought it would get, and as it expanded, there was a dire need on the rebels' part to shore up the ranks and recruit more fighters to their side. This is where the pirates came in. The Taishan rebels 
went to these Chinese pirate groups and offered them enough incentives so that they would stop what they were doing and help them in their mission. South, these Chinese pirate fleets sailed down the Vietnam coast, not far at all from southern Guangxi province, and they joined in the battle. And in the ensuing years, beginning in 1792, when the recruitment began, these pirates evolved from a wild, plundering horde to a very tight, lean, organized killing machine that knew how to hold its own in any naval encounter. On behalf of their Taishan rebel paymasters, they turned all their viciousness and effectiveness as fighters against the Vietnam government forces fighting the rebels. When it all ended in 1802, with the rebels' defeat, these South China Sea pirates quit Vietnam and headed back north to the Guangxi, Guangdong coast and used this new skill set they acquired to up the ante in their attacks on ships that wound up caught in their nets. They were no longer just an unorganized gang of ruffians plundering the unfortunate boat people and trading junks along the coast. Our anti-heroine, Zheng Yisal, wasn't born with that name. She was surnamed Shirt, the stone character Shirt. These were the same Shirts as the Shirts who made up one of the four main pirate groups who sailed the Pearl River Delta, mostly during the Qing. The other three clans were the Jungs, the Ma's, and the Shus. Yeah, piracy was a family enterprise. In that business, you really had to rely on your kinfolk. You know, anybody who worked in that industry had little honor, probably not too smart, and greedy as hell. So in any piratical enterprise, blood was always thicker than water, as it is physiologically as well. Shi Xianggu was born somewhere around Xinhui, Sunwei, as it's pronounced in botched Cantonese. From this small sliver of Guangdong province, in a hundred miles in every direction, came the unsung brave men who went to mine for gold or build railroads in America. And in so doing, they seeded almost every Chinese-American community between San Francisco and New York City. Shi Xianggu was born in 1775. That put her right in the middle of the Qianlong era. Like a lot of these pirates, she came from Tanka, or Danjia people. I mentioned these boat dwellers in the history of Hong Kong series. Tanka isn't a polite word anymore, and they're usually referred to as the Shui Shangren, or people who live on the water. Like a lot of others in Shi Xianggu's situation, she ended up working in a brothel. And there at her place of employment, right around the turn of the century, she was captured by pirates. And as her good fortune would have it, the leader of this gang of pirates wanted her for himself. He was none other than the living legend Zheng Yi. Zheng Yi was the descendant of a great seafaring clan that had its roots stretching back to the beginning of the Qing in 1644. As one of the legends goes, Zheng Yi had given specific orders to his men to capture this one particular prostitute, Shi Xianggu. Talk about a great team. After they married in 1801, Shi Xianggu not only became Zheng Yi's wife, but a complete soulmate and partner as well. They really were partners in crime. Zheng Yi knew with Shi Xianggu at his side, he could achieve his objective of uniting all the pirate fleets that sailed the Pearl River Delta under his leadership. This pirate couple caught the tail end of the Taishun Rebellion and 
Theirs were among the newly fortified and powerful pirate fleets that returned to China after the rebellion ended in 1802. Zheng Yi must have really liked Shi Xianggu because the deal he made gave her a full partnership in his enterprise. After that, Shi Xianggu became known as Zheng Yi Sao to everyone. That means Zheng Yi's wife. Over the years, they worked together and built up the Red Flag Fleet. The main pirate fleets that sailed these waters were all organized into different banners, each one identified by a color. Zheng Yi's fleet flew the Red Banner and were thus known as the Red Flag Fleet, or Hongqi Bang. Like Genghis Khan, Zheng Yi was a great consensus builder. He had emerged at the conclusion of the Taishun Rebellion as the most powerful pirate captain, and he was very successful in establishing this coalition and showing other rival pirate groups that there was merit in having this kind of mutual cooperation and that there was both safety and fortune in numbers. This coalition formed the centerpiece of this decade-long period when the pirates acted with impunity in the South China Sea. Along the way, Zheng Yi kidnapped a young 15-year-old kid from similar circumstances as Zheng Yi Sao. His name was Jiang Bo, but he's maybe better known as Jiang Bo Zai or Zhang Bao Zai. He's important because Zheng Yi and Zheng Yi Sao adopted him, and he grew up amongst the Red Flag fleet. By 1804, this Hong Chi Bang was by all accounts a major force to reckon with. They operated mainly around the Pearl River Delta, as well as along the South China coast, a place at this time in history chock-filled with foreign and domestic traders and smugglers carrying all kinds of valuable cargo. East India Company ships were constantly facing off against these guys. The details are sketchy, but the great pirate Zhang Yi died in a huge storm on November 16, 1807. Now, you'd think with this sudden death, it would have spelled the end of his widow, Zhang Yi Sao. But this is really where her legend starts. After taking stock of her situation, Zhang Yi Sao began to immediately use her own prestige and position as Zhang Yi's widow to assume his mantle. In addition to gaining support from Zheng Yi's closest comrades and key trusted piratical partners, Zheng Yi Sao also made an alliance with her adopted son, Jiang Bo Zai. Although this episode concerns the life of Zheng Yi Sao, her adopted son, Jiang Bo Zai, is probably the most famous of all these pirates from this golden age during the first decade of the 19th century. He may have been an adopted son, but that didn't prevent them from becoming lovers. And this led to marriage and a son that followed not long afterwards. Jiang Bo Zai was respected and feared enough among the seven banners of pirate fleets, whereby both he and Zheng Yi Sao were able to weather the death of Zheng Yi. A code of sorts was instituted that instilled a great amount of discipline amongst these pirates. We know of this mainly through two primary sources that made it down to our day. The first was Richard Glasspool's A Brief Narrative of My Captivity and Treatment Amongst the Ladrones. Glasspool was a British East India Company officer aboard a vessel, the Marquis of Eli. He and his crew of seven were captured on September 21st, 1809 and didn't get let go until December 7th of that year. He wrote about his experience, but referred to Zheng Yisao in the masculine, so I'm not sure how good this source is from an academic point of view. The other primary source was Charles Newman's translation of a book 
written in Chinese, called The Pirates Who Infested the South China Sea from 1807 to 1810. Qinghai Ji in its original Mandarin, that was published in 1831. Newman's book is considered the first that introduced these China Coast pirates to the West. These two books offer up an account of the exploits of these pirates, including Zheng Yisao. Glasspool managed to survive a very frightful three-month ordeal. He witnessed all kinds of the most brutal killing, torture, and depravity towards these coastal dwellers, and particularly to captured women. Regarding the code that Zheng Yisao and Zheng Bozai instituted, let me offer up a taste of how that worked. Some of these laws included the following bullet points. If you disobeyed an order, you got your head chopped off and your body thrown in the ocean. If you stole anything from the common plunder before it had been divvied up, again, got your head chopped off and body thrown in the ocean. If you raped anyone without permission from the leader of your squadron, you got the same decapitation treatment and your body thrown in the ocean. If you had consensual sex with anyone while on duty, Head chopped off, body thrown in the ocean. And the woman involved would get something akin to cement shoes, and she too would get tossed in the ocean. If you looted a town or ship of anything at all, or otherwise harassed them when they were already paying tribute, you too had to suffer the head chop and body thrown overboard fate. If you tried to leave the organization, well, you kept your head, but in this case you get your ears chopped off. Captured ugly women were to be set free unharmed. Captured pretty women could be divvied up or purchased by members of the Red Flag Fleet. However, if a pirate was awarded or purchased a pretty woman, he was then considered married to her and was expected to treat her accordingly. If he didn't, well, you can guess what happened to his head and where his body ended up. So it was a lot like this, and many who valued their head and didn't like the thought of getting their headless corpse thrown in the water made sure to walk the line. This code that Zheng Yisao and Zheng Bozai famously wrote didn't just concern itself with punishment. It also laid out how all the ill-gotten gains were to be distributed amongst the crew. Who got what? The code did quite a lot to bring order to what was probably a, an arbitrary system. The people who lived far inland, away from the coastal region, this wasn't their headache. The potential livelihood and riches that the coastal areas presented to the normal Chinese was simply too big of a lure. Fishing, trading, shipping, too many opportunities to make a nice income. But one of the downsides, besides typhoons, of course, was that people of the coast had to deal with this pirate situation. I think you have an idea how ferocious these pirates were. This is how it worked down there in the waters where Zheng Yisao and the Red Flag Fleet sailed. There was incredible discipline maintained. Everyone who knew better behaved themselves to a certain extent, and if you followed the rules, you were entitled to a piece of the action. A pirate's life wasn't for everyone, but for many it sure beat working an honest job. So anything of value that was seized from these coastal dwellers ended up being divvied up according to the rules. Then the booty ultimately made its way to any number of pirate markets that thrived in certain seaport towns. Zheng Bozai and Zheng Yisao were a great team. Zheng Yisao, who was also known as Zheng Shi, or Madam Zheng, was the brains of the organization. Zheng Bozai was in charge of the fighting and military affairs. In fact, it was 
Zheng Yisao, who took the business one step further after the death of her husband and expanded the revenue streams from simple plundering to extortion, protection, and other things like that. Hey, just another example of the strong preying on the weak. Nothing new there. That concept was thousands of years old. Another big revenue source involved selling safe passage to trading and fishing vessels who sailed in these pirate-infested waters. If you got boarded and carried the right papers, you were left alone. If you didn't pay for passage, well, you know what happened. That's essentially what happened to Richard Glasspool. Pretty much by 1808, Cheng Yisao and the associated fleets who were part of her organization owned the whole South China coast. It wasn't just the fishing and trading vessels that constantly fell prey to the Red Flag Fleet. By this time, the Qing Dynasty was calling the Red Flag Fleet and all who were in alliance with her a clear and present danger. Over 60 times, imperial ships got raided, and they were almost always carrying valuable and precious cargo or some Mandarin who could be ransomed. The pirates operated with impunity, and the Qing Navy down there, time and again, would get their asses whipped and their vessels captured. This headache, I fail to mention, ultimately rested on the shoulders of the Jiaqing Emperor up in Beijing. His reign caught the main brunt of the pirates at their most powerful and annoying. He, you may recall from previous episodes, was the Qing Emperor who had the good fortune to die before the start of... China century of humiliation. His son, the Daoguang Emperor, had the dubious distinction to be on duty when that sorry period began. The economic losses suffered by the imperial treasury, as well as all the expenses to keep up the pressure against the pirates, you know, using an insufficient navy, was a great source of the dynasty's misfortunes during the Jiaqing Emperor's reign from 1796 to 1820. And so it was that the Chinese authorities called on the British and the Portuguese to enlist their help in dealing with Zheng Yisao and the 60 or 70,000 pirates who acted on her word, half of which were under her personal direct command. The imperial court, or their representatives, cut a deal with the British and leased one vessel and 50 American volunteers. They went to take on the pirates and got thoroughly trounced, and the captured crew was beheaded. That didn't go too well. Next up were the Portuguese. The Portuguese have been fighting with South Seas pirates ever since they first started coming to these waters, ten emperors into the Ming Dynasty in 1513 with Jorge Alvarez. This isn't generally known, so I hope you keep it between us, but... Part of the reason the Ming Jiajing Emperor gave Macau to Portugal in 1557... It wasn't just to pen them into a small, easily controllable area to carry out their trade. The Portuguese had always managed to stand up to the pirates, and it was for this other reason that the China government let them hang their hat in Macau. Part of the deal was that they also had to do their best to keep the area around this part of the Pearl River free of this scourge. The final straw came towards the end of 1809 when Qing Dynasty naval assets combined with the British and Portuguese to form a naval dream team of sorts to finally rub these pirates out. The Portuguese, who had the most firepower in those waters, took the lead role in this operation. For too long, they had been dealing on and off with this pirate scourge. They, too, wanted to put an end to this once and for all. The imperial Chinese government, believing the old adage that the enemy of my enemy is my friend 
got the Portuguese to put together a fleet to deal with this. Before organizing the operation against the pirates, a Portuguese vessel sailing from Timor to Macau was attacked in September 1809 and all crew killed. And with that, the Portuguese had had enough. They at once organized a punitive expedition and tracked down Jiang Bozai's fleet, where they engaged them in a nasty barrage of gunfire from the Portuguese, forcing the pirates to scatter. On September 15, 1809, Chinese imperial emissaries met with the Portuguese in Macau and said they were also going to go after Jiang Bozai, and they requested the Portuguese to lend some ships and firepower. Portuguese agreed and lent six ships with over a hundred pieces of deadly artillery and almost a thousand men. They came up with a plan that called for an invasion of Chang Yisau's home base located on Lantau Island. The Red Flag Fleet had operations on both Lantau and Jiangzhou, or Changzhou. This is the dumbbell-shaped island off the coast of Lantau. Lantau Island, of course, the largest island that makes up the Hong Kong SAR, and today, home of the Hong Kong Airport, Disneyland, and the Bolin Monastery, among many other attractions and residents. On Changzhou Island, you can find... Jiang Bozai's Cave. It's a tourist attraction and local hiking spot. And you could actually go inside and crawl through one of Jiang Bozai's many alleged stash houses. Not for the claustrophobic. As the legend goes, he had loot stashed all over the islands of the Pearl River Delta. Jiang Yisao had herself one hell of a spy network, and somehow she got wind of this whole operation being planned against her. So she leapt into action and organized a preemptive strike against this three-nation armada assembling upstream at the north end of the Delta. End of November 1809, she attacked and surprised them at the historic city of Human. But in the end, the pirates were finding the Portuguese firepower and naval maneuvers too hard to overcome. Nonetheless, the Portuguese, after inflicting heavy damage on the pirates, scooted back to Macau to regroup and attack again. This was going to be the big showdown. Jiang Bozai had moved his entire fleet of 300 vessels to the Macau area. Well, desperate times require desperate measures, as Hippocrates and Erasmus both said once. And so the call went out announcing an imperial amnesty for any pirates who surrendered to the government authorities. Assuming the crimes you committed weren't too egregious, you'd be handed a pardon direct from the Qing government and a job offer in the military. It wasn't so bad. Tens of thousands of pirates facing an uncertain future took the government up on their offer when it came in 1810. After that defeat at the hands of the Portuguese in December 1809, and again as the year turned to 1810, Jiang Bozai's allies, the Black Flag Fleet, after considering their options, decided to take the government up on the offer. And that was a sign to Jiang Bozai and Zheng Yisao that the tide was perhaps changing. The Red Flag Fleet made one last effort to turn the tide in their favor, but the Portuguese weren't going to allow themselves to be beaten, and their firepower was turning out to be too deadly. Considering the circumstances, they found themselves in Jiang Potai and Chang Yisao had to take a close look at that amnesty deal. They were getting outgunned and having trouble keeping their fleet from getting destroyed. 
despite one final all-or-nothing engagement near Hulman. That was it. The Red Flag fleet was thoroughly trounced and cornered, and after a brave visit from the Portuguese commander who had been slapping the pirates around, Junkboat's eye agreed to back down. Better to cut his losses and take the amnesty. This idea of paying off enemies to get them to back down has been going on since the Han Dynasty. There was nothing wrong with utilizing the same strategy. Zheng Yisao, one fine April 18th day in 1810, showed up unarmed and unannounced at the governor general's residence and turned herself in and began negotiations regarding her surrender. And if you believe the stories, she ended up doing quite well for herself. In return for the full pardon they gave her, she got out of the pirating business forever. Over the period of two days of negotiations, the deal she struck allowed her to keep all her loot, which was probably a lot. She was given the aristocratic title of Lady Jung, which I'm sure came in handy every now and then. Jiang Bozai, the more famous and notorious of this duo, he was given the title of Lieutenant Colonel in the Qing Imperial Navy and ironically spent the rest of his short life eradicating piracy, especially in and around Fujian province. Like Zheng Yisao, Zheng Bozai cut a sweet deal with the Jiaqing Emperor, and he had it nice until his end came in 1822. There's this story, I mean, this whole episode is a story more than history. You know, these pirates from the Golden Age of 1802 to 1810, it's pretty slim pickings as far as reliable primary sources. Yeah, we have glass pools and Newman's books, but that's hardly enough, so who knows if this ever happened or not, but but whatever the case, part of the deal also called for Zheng Yisao to kneel before the emperor's representative as thanks to show his favor with his pardon. Well, she wouldn't do it. So a workaround was thought up that called for Zheng Yisao to marry Zheng Bozai before the emperor's rep, and as part of the ceremony, they would bow to him. And that dotted the last I as far as the final arrangements to the uh, surrender. And that, as they say, was that. From the two sons she had with Zheng Yi and the one from Zheng Bozai, Zheng Yi Sao had several grandchildren and lived to what was, back then, the ripe old age of 69, passing in 1844. After Zheng Bozai died in 1822, it's said that Zheng Yi Sao moved back to Guangzhou and opened an opium den and a house of prostitution. So that's the legend, I guess you could call it, of Zheng Shi. Madam or Widow Jung, Shishanku. She didn't earmark any budget for a pirate historian who might have chronicled her milestones. So really, in the English-speaking world at least, all we have are the accounts of various eyewitnesses who were able to offer up a narrative of what they saw and experienced. That was better than nothing. Every sea in the world has seen its share of pirates. They've been around since men first swallowed their fears and boarded vessels and took to the sea. Pretty much as soon as the age of exploration kicked into high gear, there were always these piratical opportunists looking for the easy score. Captain Kidd, Blackbeard, Black Bart, Henry Morgan, Calico Jack, and Anne Bonny, they were cold-blooded killers, one and all, and they somehow weaseled their way into our popular culture. And of course, today we have Disney's Pirates of the Caribbean franchise, the gift that keeps on giving. 
You know, in part three of Pirates of the Caribbean, At Land's End, Chung Shir was the inspiration behind Mistress Ching, and one of my favorites, the multi-talented Zhao Yun-Fat as Cao Feng, the pirate lord, whose character was inspired by Jiang Bozai. And of course, i got to mention Keith in his Oscar-worthy role as Captain Teague. Yeah, Zhang Yisao and Zhang Bozai both ended up firmly embedded in our popular culture, acting as the inspiration to characters and video games, graphic novels, movies, TV serial dramas, and as characters and other artistic media. Let me close out by quoting an excerpt from Richard Glasspool's book. Here he describes a pirate raid on a coastal village. Typical stuff. He refers to the pirates as ladrones, which is Spanish for thieves, or in this case, pirates. Quote, The ladrones now prepare to attack the town with a formidable force, collecting in rowboats from the different vessels. They sent a messenger to the town, demanding a tribute of $10,000 annually, saying if these terms were not complied with, they would land, destroy the town, and murder all the inhabitants, which they would certainly have done had the town laid in a more advantageous situation for their purpose. But being placed out of the reach of their shot, they allowed them to come to terms. The inhabitants agreed to pay $6,000, which they were to collect by the time of our return down the river. This finesse had the desired effect, for during our absence they mounted a few guns on a hill, which commanded the passage, and gave us, in lieu of the dollars, a warm salute on our return. October the 1st, the fleet weighed in the night, dropped by the tide up the river, and anchored very quietly before a town, surrounded by a thick wood. Early in the morning, the ladrones assembled in rowboats and landed, then gave a shout and rushed into the town, sword in hand. The inhabitants fled to the adjacent hills in numbers apparently superior to the ladrones. We may easily imagine to ourselves the horror with which these miserable people must be seized on being obliged to leave their homes and everything dear to them. It was a most melancholy sight to see women in tears clasping their infants in their arms and imploring mercy for them from these brutal robbers. The old and the sick who were unable to fly or to make resistance were either made prisoners or most inhumanely butchered. The boats continued passing and repassing from the junks to the shore in quick succession, laden with booty and the men besmeared with blood. 250 women and several children were made prisoners and sent on board different vessels. They were unable to escape with the men, owing to that abominable practice of cramping their feet. Several of them were not able to move without assistance. In fact, they may all be said to totter rather than walk. Twenty of these poor women were sent on board the vessel I was in. They were hauled on board by their hair and treated in a most savage manner. When the chief came on board, he questioned them respecting the circumstances of their friends and demanded ransoms accordingly from 6000 to $600 each. He ordered them a berth on deck at the after part of the vessel where they had nothing to shelter them from the weather, which at this time was very variable, the days excessively hot and the nights cold with heavy rains. The town being plundered of everything valuable, it was set on fire and reduced to ashes by the morning. The fleet remained here three days, negotiating for the ransom of the prisoners and plundering the fish tanks and gardens. 
During all this time, the Chinese never ventured from the hills, though there were frequently not more than a hundred ladrones on shore at a time, and I am sure the people on the hills exceeded ten times that number. End quote. From the east coast of China all the way down to the Qiongzhou Strait in Hainan, these coastal dwelling people faced this same scenario every time they were visited by pirates. It doesn't seem so terrifying hearing about it, but I'm sure if you were one of those running for the hills or facing them down, it was another matter. With the amnesty, it certainly didn't end piracy, but after 1810, the waters of the Pearl River Delta quieted down and people were able to live in peace to a certain extent. So that, my friends, is the story of the Qing Dynasty pirate queen of the South China Seas, Zheng Yisao, and her exploits together with the even more famous pirate Zheng Bozai. Together they lived the life during the first decade of the 19th century when pirates reigned supreme on land and on sea along the entire South China coast, particularly in the waters where the Pearl River empties out into the South China Sea. Okay, that's all I got. Thanks, as always, if you made it this far. This is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from where else but Los Angeles, California, begging and imploring you to please consider joining me next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.